When I was um, 17, I, uh, I have a very wobbly table this morning. When I was 17, I, I felt very clearly the, the call of God upon my life. It was part of a, a larger uh, um, call from God to follow him. And then very quickly after that, um, I started to speak. I was around about 18 when I started to speak. So that's 26 years ago. Um, and, uh, um, and, he, and he radically changed my life. He impacted my life in a way that um, even though 18 seems so incredibly young, I have an 18-year-old son now, and, and, uh, and, and I look at him and I go, wow, he's so young. I, you can get into a lot of trouble by the time you're 18. Those of you who were in a lot of trouble by the time you're 18, amen, or is it just me? <laughs> yes, worse. Let's just dwell upon that for a second, Sila. Um, and I'm very grateful that God in his wisdom chose to, um, to call me to himself so early on. I have no regrets that I, that, I, uh, that I have a testimony that started so young. Some of you were very much older, and, and that's good. God can use all stories for sure. But I, I, I fell in love with the Word of God very, very quickly, and, and, I, and I discovered this, that the Word of God actually has a lot in it that I disagree with. And let me, let me, just, uh, let me just make something clear. Uh, just because I disagree with it doesn't mean to say it's not true. Okay? Um, it, it creates a, uh, an angst in me that over the years what I have done is I've learned to doubt myself and my own thoughts and my own experiences before I doubt the Word of God. And so I, I might read something and it would cause me to go, oh, that, I really wish that wasn't in there. But it is in there, so therefore I submit and humble myself under the Word of God and I say, okay, I'm going to look at uh, the larger uh, story around maybe the verse that I struggle with. And we're quick sometimes, I think, as not just Christians, as people in our experience to read a verse or two and go, Oh, you know, I can't agree with that and reject it. Whereas if you actually look at what uh, theologians would call mega-themes in the Bible, you actually find that the so-called contradictions are not contradictions at all. They're just out of context. And I became a pastor full-time in this role uh, about six and a half years ago before spending a, a lot of my time as a teacher and a school administrator and pastoring at the same time, planting a few churches as we went, because as a teacher I just thought I wasn't busy enough, so I thought I should uh, do some extra ministry on top of that, and God was gracious and kind, and he blessed that. Um, all the time, truly believing in, in the power of the Word of God, and also growing increasingly uh, in belief in the power of the local church, uh, and what church brings, the, what we are doing on a Sunday morning, the gathering, and also then what we do in the week from Monday through to Sunday, I, I'm also very conscious and aware, is very much church too. And so I look at the, the church and I say, okay, Lord, I know that this is an answer to a struggling and hopeless generation and culture, even though we're good at putting the veneer on the actual reality of what's going on in our culture, especially this weekend, if you go downtown, I don't recommend you do, but you know, we, we, we desperately need something more than just what self-medication brings us, whether it be alcohol or whether it be TV or the internet or work or business or money or whatever it might be, we need something so much more. And I truly believe that that something more is 
the church and the word of God and the gospel. And then what I do is because I'm a task-oriented person, and I'm, I'm, uh, if you look at my strength finders, you're going to find futurist, strategic, uh, achiever, maximizer, all the perfect combination for burnout. That, that's me. And so, okay, okay, Lord, I got the word of God. We've got the church. Let's hit this thing hard. Let's, let's just get some solid strategy together for you to move, to allow you to move in this community. Um, and then I find out that doesn't work, which is not a surprise, because it seems as I read this word that he's actually made it really simple. Because in the beginning, it says God. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Glenn. Um, not in the beginning, Brad. Not in the beginning, Jen. Not in the beginning, Glenn. That rhymes. Not in the beginning, Glenn. No, it's God. In the beginning, Glenn. No, God. And I keep on wanting to bring him back to what I think church should be and what I think Christianity should be. And he keeps on reminding me, no, God. And, and, and if you listen to my sermon from a few weeks ago in Psalm 8, I, I go into quite a bit of depth about creation and the universe and, and everything else. But God created in the beginning and he said it was good. And then at the end of his creation, he said, this is very good. And then he took a rest. And I don't read anywhere in the Bible where he started to work again. Took a day off, okay, day off over, let's get back to work. No, he's, he's still at rest, it's still very good. But then, then man comes into the scene and he breaks it. Sin comes into the world, so that which is good is now broken. And there's a separation between God and there's a separation between God and man. And in fact, so much so in the Garden of Eden that God puts the flaming sword separating us from his presence. said, I can have nothing to do with sin. You see, we have no problem with the idea of God being a loving God. We like those passages in the scriptures. But what we do struggle with is as much as he says that he's a loving God, he also says that he's a holy God. And a holy God can have nothing to do with sin or the outworking of sin. So it separates us from God. And then the scriptures carry on on and you read through the Old Testament, you see men and women just going through this process of journeying after God, messing up, and, and, and then God constantly saying, uh, uh, speaking to his people right in the garden when God is looking for Adam and Eve, he says this, where are you? And they're hiding behind bushes like God somehow has suddenly become really bad at hide and seek. You know, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he, he knows exactly where they are, and yet he says, where are you? And that echoes through the Old Testament, and in into the New Testament, into our generation, this constant, where are you as a people? Where are you? Where's your spirit? Where's your soul? Where's your heart? Where's your direction? What's your ultimate? And then in the middle of the Old Testament, in his mercy and in his love, he, he, he creates this system. We call it the Old, the Old Testament, the system of the law. And he says, there's all these laws and commandments that you need to follow in order to find forgiveness And there were 613 of them, and we read in the New Testament that they all were basically there to show us as humans that we cannot do this ourselves. We can't fix what is broken by our own activity. And and he put the temple in the middle of the wilderness as part of it, as a tent, and gathered his people around it. And this this tent, this tabernacle, and later on the physical building, the, the temple was created so that people would come, the high priest would come and give sacrifice so that we could get into the presence of God again. But we read in Hebrews that that failed. It came too short. It wasn't good enough. And so Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is the ultimate high priest. He comes and he lives the perfect life that we all strive to live. And then he dies the death that we all deserve to die. 
He becomes the ultimate sacrifice. Our sin placed upon him and his perfection. He, the Bible says, became a curse. Because remember, sin separates you from God. And it dies with him. And then there's this imputation, this, this, this imparting of his righteousnesses in life into our life. And he says, now you're no longer broken. You are reconciled back to the beginning. That perfection, but... We still struggle with sin. Sin still has a a remnant, certainly, in our life. But this sin dying, this righteousness flooding in, is such an incredible gift to our culture. Everything that we all strive for found in Jesus. And then nearing the end of his ministry, Jesus, who had gathered around his disciples, these men who were really... um, In Britain, we would say they were as thick as two short planks. They're They're not very... You know, you can just read, especially Peter, bless him. I don't know whether there's a couple of Peters in the congregation, so I have to be careful. I'm not saying there's anything connected to the name, although I'm sure some of the wives would agree. But they're just like, oh, you're just not getting it. You, 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 don't, you don't get it. I'm just getting some water. I've not had enough. I'm going home. These disciples who hung on the word of Jesus constantly... We're told, and we read it in John 13 and 14, and Jesus says, actually, my time is coming to an end. But I, I, I got good news. He said in, in, in John 14, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and the greater works than these he will do or she will do, because I am going to the Father Just put yourself in the position of disciples. You've got this whole story that starts in the beginning, God, all the way through. And you see the outworking of God, ultimately to Jesus, who is the perfection, everything, 100% God, 100% human, becoming a curse so that we could then get close to God, that that separation is is dealt with and the punishment that is required is placed upon him. and, And you've got all this beauty. And then Jesus says this, okay, over to you. I'm done. And not only am I done, greater things will you do. Think about what they saw. And he's saying, greater things will you do because I'm going. Because I'm going to the Father. And church, do we really believe this? I I think I can safely say no. We don't really believe it because I think if we really believed it, it would actually have an impact and a change Not only in our church, but in our culture. A group of people, no matter how big or how small, because remember, he's only talking to a group of of 12, one of which is going to be his traitor. So 11 disciples, and he's saying, look, you are going to turn the world upside down. And he says that, it says it in Acts, that this group of people turn the world upside down. That you have everything you need, he's telling them, to turn the world upside down. And, and they must have gone, how are we going to do this? So when I look at Kelowna, and I look at the 150,000 swelling to 200,000 or whatever in the summer, I'm looking, God, how in the world is this church going to have an impact in that community. I mean, some people even struggle to find the building. Literally our building, because God in his wisdom decided to make it the hardest church to find in Kelowna. Like, if you come to the south, you're really committed, because you might just get lost and never make it. How are we going to do that? How, how are we going to do greater things? 
And this is where I start with going, I read what the Bible says and I go, oh man, I I can't agree with that. How am I going to do greater things? But because of my commitment to the Word of God, I have to go to myself first and say, now, you know what, Jesus, I'm not saying Jesus made a mistake there because clearly he he hasn't been to the South or he's never been to Kelowna. He's clearly never been in the middle of the mosh pit at the center of gravity. He's not been to some of the worst places this world has, the ghettos. And can I just tell you, and, and, I, and I'm going to say this to the video, I know Rutland has its issues. It is not a ghetto. Can we stop saying the, you know, the ghetto in Kelowna? If you think that, you need to get out more. You need to go see the world more. You look at these places where children are sold like candy on streets. And you go, how... Am I and we going to do greater things than Jesus himself? And he was talking to 11, not however many are in this room. We see in John 16, he goes on and he explains the how. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. I will make the impossible possible because I am going and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's not just going to be this this presence you're going to find in the temple. He's actually going to be in us. So therefore, you can go and do greater things. You're going to get this impossible task done. And so what I do is, okay, okay, Lord... um, well, we, you know, we only had six and a half people come out to the south last week. How are we going to get this done? Uh, well, prayer meeting, there's just not enough people there. How are we going to get this done? The, the, the graphics on the screen got a spelling mistake. I spotted it too. Uh, how are we ever going to get this done? The drums are a bit loud. How are we ever going to get this done? They weren't, Drew. You did a great job. How are we ever going to get this done? And I go back to my methodology. I go back to my strategic futurist achiever maximizer. How are we going to get this done? And Jesus says, look, Glenn, this is my own words. It's deep in the Greek. Just chill out. Just relax. I'm going to tell you how you're going to get it done. Verse 7, John 15. You ready? This is how we get it done. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and I'll get none of it done. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. And it will be done for you. Yes, Ferrari. Come on, Lord. No, no, it doesn't say that. No matter what garbage you read or watch on TV, it does not say that because the reality is this. If you do the first part of the verse, then the second part of the verse comes reality because you're not going to ask for anything that's outside of the first part of the verse, which is abiding in Jesus anyway. Now, if it's his will for you to have a Ferrari, then praise the Lord. I hope you tithe. But if you abide in me, this is how you're going to get it done, Glenn. Willow Park Church South, this is how we're going to get it done. This is how we're going to have the impossible come possible. This is how we're going to do greater things than even Jesus did. This is how the Holy Spirit is going to get activated in our community. This is how the people who seem so far away from Jesus, who seem so distant, so impossible, that we are so quickly cynical of, this is how they are going to come to know him by us, the church, abiding in him. This is how we're going to get it done. Don't worry about the numbers. Don't worry about the how. Don't worry about any of that. It's not to say any of that is bad, but that is not our focus. Our focus has to be abiding in him. I don't like that. 
Because it has to be harder than that, surely. Does it not have to be harder than that? We're great in our culture making really, really simple things hard and then writing books about how to make them simple again. Just abide in me. Because he doesn't leave us there. He says, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, but this is, this is what I want you to do. You're going to change the world. This is how we're going to do it. Uh, that you um, abide in me. And then he starts to pray in John 17. He says this, and this is a little bit longer, verse 14. I have given them your word. This is him praying to the Father on our behalf about the future, and so it very much includes us. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Does the world hate you? This is a really great gauge as to how well you're living out your faith in front of others, because if you are not being hated, then that itself should bring conviction. So if you're hated, great job. I'll leave that with you. Just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Man, that's a tough one to read. So our Christian subculture that we've beautifully created for ourselves, taking us out of the world with our really thick quadruple glazed windows, that just, let's, just, let's just protect us and our loved ones from the nasty sin that's in the world. Then Jesus is actually saying, no, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Uh, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's really simply, I'm praying for everybody who's going to come to know Jesus through the word of God, now and in the future. I'm going to pray that they don't shield themselves away from the world, but they will be protected. And I'm going to pray that they would would, uh, be sanctified, they would be changed by truth. They would go into the world sent. But there's two words buried in the middle of that, that... It's hard for me to make sense of. And I, and I think that they'll be shown in the next slide. If we could go to the next slide, please, Dwayne. Just as. I have given them the world that the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 20, uh, sorry, 21, it says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, that word, those two words, just as, is actually incredible. He's saying this. He says, in the same way that the Father and the Son are one, then we also should be one. He says, so just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then verse 22 and 23 says, The glory you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Even as. So we, you and me, should be one in the same way that Jesus and the Father is one. Think about that. 
Not that we just put up with one another, but that we actually love one another and be part of one another's lives in the same way that Jesus was part of the Father's life. So why am I sharing this? Remember, it's part of the prayer. The prayer that comes on the back of them changing the world. This is, this is how. We read it in verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And then in verse 21, it says, so the world may believe that you have sent me. So Glenn, here's the answer to the, the desire of my heart that a church is actually going to impact a community not by our programs, not by our smart graphics, not by our ability to promote, not by my preaching, not by our amazing worship. All those things facilitate one thing. And the prayer of Jesus shows us what that one thing is. It's that you and I become one. Then they will believe. Yours and my unity Yours and mine moving in the same direction. You and me not just putting up with one another, but loving one another. The Acts 2, that we would actually not only uh, share uh, Sunday mornings together, but we'd actually share our lives together. That that red Ferrari that you're praying, now it's red, I'm getting very specific. That Ferrari you're praying for, it also says you share your possessions. Praise the Lord. I'm joking, I should just drop the Ferrari. But that oneness is what is going to actually create this sense of God's presence in our community. And that oneness is only possible when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That oneness is only possible when you come to him and you recognize that it is to our advantage, that we are going to do great, friends, we're going to do greater things when we are one working together. The world is going to believe through us being one. That's what Jesus said. And I'm not going to stand in front of Jesus and tell him that he's wrong. You see how simple it is? I'm going. You come to the cross. You seek my forgiveness. Your sin will be placed on me, Jesus says. And it dies. Paul says that he became a curse. Galatians 2.20. So that you and I could have life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this great exchange, as Martin Luther called it, that my sin for his life. So he now lives in me. And then he says, abide in me. Do this simple thing. And I'm praying that there'll be one. See, I I would have pointed at all sorts of different things that this community are going to get one by. Being one is, is not it. So then the question becomes, do we really believe this book? See, if we stand united, believing in the Holy Spirit, encouraging one another, then we will actually see a change in our community. Now, for those of you who are more task-oriented, you're going, okay, how does that happen and what does that look like? I'm going to come to that in a second. A couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned this last week in my sermon at 33, I I went to see uh, Dunkirk. The, the movie, which I highly recommend you go and see. It's a fantastic movie. It's a rescue story. It's the gospel. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, there's these images and scenes of young men, some of them the same age as my, my boy, 18, some of them younger because they lied, being rescued by citizens of the United Kingdom, just, just guys in their boats, chugging over the, gosp- uh, over the, um, over the channel, 
literally going into a war zone to rescue young men who were trapped. 335,000 of them they rescued. The, the, the movie does a brilliant job. It's not like I'm giving away the end, because just open Wikipedia, it's right there. But, you know, there's these beautiful scenes of young men. And I'll tell you why I think it's beautiful. Holding on for dear life to the side of boats that are going to rescue them. But then there's also these incredible, beautiful scenes of young men helping their buddies on the boat instead of them sometimes. You go. You go. Covered in oil. and, And you're like, that's... That moment when you are facing the enormity and dangerous task, when you are shoulder to shoulder with somebody, that's when real oneness comes about. Does that make sense? That's when words don't mean anything. Actions mean everything. So listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, Wow, that's really blue, hey? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Why are they striving side by side for the gospel? Everything that I've just described that Jesus was praying for and talking about. For the faith of the gospel, not not their, their own lives, not their own thoughts, not their own ambitions, not their own families, nothing like that. They're doing it for the faith of the gospel, for the desperation of other people who need to hear the good news of Jesus because they are going to hell. For the faith of the gospel, they are striving by one another. And then it says in verse 28, and not frightened. And not frightened. The number one reason that we fail as a church, Willow Park Church South, Willow Park Church Network, Christendom in general, the reason that we fail to have mass impact in our communities is not because of our quadruple glazing that we're hiding behind. It's because of the fear that's keeping us there. And I said a couple of weeks ago that if we just spent one week actually living out and not caring what people said or thought and, and putting aside that fear that Paul is talking about here, that for the faith of the gospel we're not going to be frightened, that we're going to be side by side striving, then it will have an impact on our family, that one, on our community, that, that oneness that we would experience. And so this is what church should look like. Are we pursuing this oneness? Because if you peel the layers behind, what the question really is, is not are we pursuing unity as a church so that we can feel more protected by one another. We're actually saying, do we feel united as a church because we're going to need one another because it's so dang frightening out there. And if you're not frightened, we're not doing it. We're not stepping out. If you're not having a regular thought of, how am I going to do this? God, I desperately need your help because I am going to talk to this person about Jesus today and I don't know how I'm going to say it. I don't know how it's going to come about. I am frightened. I've never done it. I, I, you know, I, 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 I haven't got the same words as other people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're going to need one another if we're going to do that. 
I wonder whether as we come into the fall, this could be the year the church at Will Park Church South makes a decision that we're going to be one and we're going to be bold together. Together. In, in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, and I want to bring this to a conclusion, which as you all know doesn't mean anything, has no relation to time at all. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, God placed the temple in the middle of the people and said, come, make sacrifice, come meet me. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ replaces the sacrificial system and he says, now you come to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, you're gonna, it's my advantage, to your advantage I go to heaven because you are going to get the Holy Spirit and you are going to become the temple. You are going to be the place that people meet Jesus. You're it. But then it goes further in Paul's writing. He talks more about the temple. And it's all plural. That we're all together with the temple. So I heard this illustration this week. And I've taken it and I've expanded on it. Um, This is... uh, Those of you who have children, depending on what... Some of you just shuddered at the thought of what these things actually bring to your home. This Lego piece. Um, how many of you have actually stood on one of these? Yes. See, in Britain, there is something worse than a Lego piece to stand on. It's the plugs that we use in Britain, the three-pronged plugs. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Three-pronged plugs like that, and they, stand, they sit on the floor. If you've ever stepped on one of them, oh my goodness, how many of you have done that? The Brits in the room, yes. Lego is brutal by itself. And I realized, if you actually look in the seat pocket in front of you, you'll find one of these. I'd like you to take it out. You can fight over it. I'll give you a second. Um, If it's not in front of you, it'll be one next to you. And you can take this home (laughs) and play with it. Just the one. But in many ways, we are this Lego piece. And, and, and And it is actually useful, except not by itself. You see, and, and the scriptures talk about us coming together and being temple, spiritual stones, it says in First Peter 2. And it might be that, you know, by itself, it's, it's, it's pretty rubbish. I mean, there you go. That, that's it. In fact, you step on that. This can be pretty dangerous. If you isolate yourself as a Christian, you're dangerous. You end up getting edges to you that just, they, they hurt. You're not designed to be isolated. You're not designed to be by yourself. But you go, no, I'm fine. I've got my family. Okay, so uh, I'll get my family's Lego bits, pieces. Now I've got three of us. In fact, there would be more than that. Still not that impressive. I mean, I love them. That's great. But in a lot, Paul Luke had a little yellow one. But again, that's just not what it was designed to be. Here's why we need church. For people who say, I don't need to go to church, it's, it, it's likely that you're off by yourself somewhere, maybe with just with three or four of you, 
Um, but if I actually took all your Lego pieces, 150 of them, I could actually build something, give me some time that, that hopefully, maybe, could be, might be a little ugly, might be a bit rough around the edges, might be a little strange, a bit eclectic, but it would be something. More than that, we need one another because the Bible says that Jesus is actually the chief cornerstone. So we actually get to be part of something bigger and greater than us that is going to bring an impact and a change into our world, but we have to do it together, not by ourselves coming to church once every other month. Because as, as, as nice as that is, it actually is not at all effective as it is when you're actually connecting with one another in community groups, in prayer groups, church on Sunday morning. We are created to be in relationship with one another. And Jesus said, as we are one, then we're actually going to have an impact in our world. And you need the church because if we're truly going to live out that which we've been called to live out, then we will want to get together so we can, first of all, share stories. You wouldn't believe what happened to me this week. And secondly, get some prayer because, boy, am I going to need that for what's going to happen this coming week. And then you'll find that as we do that, then we'll invite more people to come and join in with what we've got. And the church grows. I got asked a week or so ago, what would be my ideal when it comes to a church? And increasingly, I I am less and less concerned with numbers for the sake of it. What I would be very, very happy with is two or three hundred people all connected in community groups, praying and doing exploits in their community. And that excites me. And it all starts with you abiding with Jesus. But I promise you this, the more you abide with him, the more you're going to get attracted to those that he loves And you're going to love what he loves. And he loves the church. He loves this. And we could have debates as to what this looked like in the New Testament. And we can go back and forth. They met in large gatherings and they met in small gatherings. That's what the New Testament says. But you will start falling in love with that which Jesus loves. And he loves the church. Why? Because the church together will actually change this world. So what does that look like in the fall? Well, in the fall, I'm going to give you every opportunity to once again join a community group, to come to prayer meetings, to maybe join in with me on evangelism and outreach. We're actually going to start stepping out and doing some stuff that maybe we've been frightened to do in the past. And we're going to support one another in prayer and in unity and oneness. And we're just going to see whether, uh, what God wants to do in this church. And uh, you'll have noticed that I didn't mention one psalm. Because <laughs> we're in the middle of a psalm series. And, and, I, and I really tried hard to make it about psalms. But I was just like, I just felt so strongly that I ought to share this with you. And I'm, and I'm glad I did because basically what I've done is, is read you my journal. We can, we can do this because Jesus is in us together. So if you're on the outskirts, we're going to come to communion, which is the ultimate sign, communion, to coming together. Rick Warren uh, very wisely described church as, as concentric circles. And I've said this before, but the outer circle is the community. It's the people who maybe don't even know the South exists yet. They're the ones we're trying to impact. Then there's another circle called crowd. 
crowd of the people that come every other week or so and just kind of drop in, dip in and dip out. Then you've got the um, then you've got congregation, a little more committed, but not necessarily committed, which is the next circle. Like I'm, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then there's core. And I, and I, and I would say the core's role is to get the community to become crowd, to become congregation, to become uh, commit, committed, to become core, and it goes on like that. And I just want you to think, when it comes to church, where, where are you in this oneness? Are you, are you here? I was going to pass this around, we could click it on, but I thought, it's just going to take ages and somebody's going to want to build something, so it's not going to go right. Are, are, you, are, you, are you in this? Or, or you're over here? And maybe there's three or four of you in your family that are over here by yourselves. Come, come in and join in. Join a community group. Say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. One thing do I seek, to be in the temple of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. So we're going to come to the communion that that really is the ultimate sign of unity, together. And um, and what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Josh to come and and lead us in in a song. And while we're, t- while, we're, while we're singing, just come forward and you take the, uh, the bread and the juice. The scriptures say very clearly that this is open to everybody who believes in Jesus Christ as his Savior or her Savior. And, um, and that you should examine yourselves. And if you have submitted your life to Christ and you know that the Spirit of God is in you, no matter how disjointed you might feel, you just know that He is your Lord, even though you may be struggling, you are welcome to come and take the bread and the juice. If you are not, then I encourage you that now is a great time to submit yourself to the authority of Christ. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for thinking that I could fix myself. And you just ask for his forgiveness and the scriptures say very simply that he will forgive you. And then church, what we're going to do is you come and take the bread and you come and take the juice and you come back and we're going to take it together as a sign of our oneness together. So let me pray for the bread and the wine and then we'll sing and then you can come forward and partake. Lord, I I love your church. I love it, Lord, because you love it. So much so that you said it's like your bride. Lord, I believe your church is the hope of this city. Lord, we have all sorts of different ideas as to what church should look like. And God, I'm grateful that you don't detail that in your scriptures apart from saying they'll be they'll be together they'll share life together they'll love the scriptures together they'll pray together and they will do crazy frightening things together that just seems to me Lord to be a great summary of what you want church to be all anchored in the beautiful sacrifice Jesus you made for each one of us on the cross And so, Lord, I pray now as we come to communion that, God, you will bless the bread 
you'll bless the wine. And that, Lord, it would be a moment in time that you would speak to us. Are you abiding in him, Willow Park Church South? Are you abiding in him? Are you frightened this morning? Are you questioning? Are you doubtful? And the good news is, if he says, come, come to the table, come to the altar, pray, confess, gaze upon his beauty, and he promises to forgive, he promises to fill, he promises to give hope, a new life just come Lord I pray for boldness Lord those first Christians in Acts it seemed to be their number one prayer constantly God give us boldness but Lord I pray you would give us reason for this boldness but Lord as a church that we would together move into our neighborhoods and families and communities and workplaces and actually be the temple to show people the good news, to discuss, to pray for. Lord, give us the boldness to do that. And Lord, I pray over the next year as we come into the fall and we think about the future months that Lord, that this church would stand united together however many there are, Lord. Thank you, Father, in advance for the exploits and the adventures. Praise your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Praise you, Jesus.